Good morning. Welcome to, uh, to welcome to our family gathering of Cultivate Church. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. Um, our prayer really is that you would feel like you're among the family of God, which means that if you're visiting with us today, we hope that you never visit a church again. And what I mean by that is uh, not that you wouldn't go to a building or be a part of a service time or whatever, um, but we believe that the church is the family of God. We've been made his family because of Jesus. And so we are his family who gather. So if you're here and you're not the church, you're actually with the church. And we hope that through Jesus, you'll actually become the church along with us and get sent out onto God's mission and do all the things that he has for us to do. Because it's a pretty amazing life when you get to live it with Jesus out in the world. Is it not? Those of you who have experienced that, it's pretty cool, isn't it? We're in the middle of a series called Invisible Made Visible, and we're talking about how it is that we can know who God is because of Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what he means is, I'm how you know what God is like. And so we've been taking the whole summer to, to know what God is like by looking at Jesus, to look at his life and what he does for us. And we're looking at different attributes of God and how they find their visibility, if you will, through the person of Jesus. And so I hope that it's been an encouragement to you as we've done that. Uh, last week we looked at the wisdom of God, Jesus as being the wisdom. Today we're going to look at Jesus as being the resurrection and the life. Um, so you may have heard that phrase before, it comes out of John 11. And if you're going to follow along, we're going to read the story in John 11 where he says that. And it's on page 746 and 747. Um, and so I'd really like you to engage with the story. If you're a reader, you can read along. If you're, if you're more of like an a auditory learner, then just close your eyes and kind of let the story hit you and, and see if it doesn't do something in your heart, okay? So we're going to try to become part of the story this morning. So this is what happens, John 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters went and sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in a day? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. 
And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he's asleep, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. But when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who, wants, who, who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called to her sister. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him, where the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were coming along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could not he who opened the, bl- the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the, sis- the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did, they put their faith in him. But some others uh, of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's quite a story, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And it's almost too amazing to believe, right? I mean, how many times have we read through a story in the Bible and we go, man, that must have been awesome if it only happened, <laughs> you know? 
But John wants us to make sure that we don't miss this because he's actually writing it in such a way that we would read it. And and what's the whole point of the story? What, what, What does Jesus say over and over and over again is the reason why he's allowing this to happen? So that we'd believe, right? And that's the whole reason John is writing this story. He's constructing it in such a way that you'd get to the end of it and you go, man, that must have taken place. How awesome is that? And he doesn't want us to miss either the, the, the extent of Jesus' power, that he is the most remarkable person to ever walk the planet, the only one who has ever overcome death. That's who Jesus is. Um, you... you probably know this, but maybe you don't know the extent of it, is that death is the most pervasive issue that we will ever face in life. And the the reality of death is actually more present in our lives than we give credit for. It, It motivates many of the choices that we make and decisions we choose and people that we hang around and what we do and what we don't do with our time. Much of that is motivated by either our fear of death or our anticipation of it coming or our trying to avoid dying altogether. And John is using this story to say we are all going to die. We are actually all dying. And there is one who's come into this world to reverse death and actually undo the pain that it causes. Someone who can actually deal with the, the, the very worst thing that you and I can ever face. Have you ever noticed, though, um, that there are a lot of people out there that are trying to do everything possible to avoid the reality of their own death? I mean, can you think of examples? Surgery, Surgery, yeah. You know, if you're a, a doctor and you're pretty skilled with your hands, one of the most lucrative businesses that you can get into is plastic surgery. And I, I know that there are a lot of plastic surgery that's reconstructive and, and helps us to kind of get back to the way that we looked before an incident happened, and all that is good. Like, that's, that's good practice. But do you, do you ever see that people that just get surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery, and they think that the next one is going to be the one that fixes everything and puts them back the way that they were when they were 18 and... and, and er- and, and the more they do this, the more they delude themselves, and they actually look less human through the process. There are reality TV shows about this, right? And, the, and people watch them a lot. <laughs> um, guys, though, we, we aren't immune to this either. Do you know the average uh, age of the person who buys a Harley Davidson? 50. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Why aren't 20-year-olds buying Harleys? Well, you can't afford them. Okay. There's an easy answer. But why 50? Yeah. It's like, well, my legs can't make me feel fast anymore because my body's beginning to break down. And rather than face the reality that I'm slowing down, I will hop on a device which makes me go fast again. And I'll feel much younger than I am. Right? Those of you who have Harleys, I just totally dissed you like crazy. (laughs) Kenny's up here like, I'm ready to jump the stage, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my Harley's coming, right? My Harley, at least my Harley moment, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. So why is it? I mean, why, why is it that, that we all feel this urge and pressure 
to, to avoid the reality of death. Because we all do it. It's because death is the worst thing that we could possibly face. And the earlier we're confronted with it, the earlier we try to make choices where we can avoid it. The more we avoid it, the less we have to think about it. And then when it comes up into our world, as it does for so, so many of us so often, it's horrible, isn't it? I was thinking about this when I was putting the message together. You know, I did five funerals before I did my first wedding. I mean, terrible. It, it's it's awful, and I'm, I'm thankful now that God is reversing that, uh, that ratio. But See, we don't like death because it's, there's something in us that goes, this is unnatural. This, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't sit right with us because in our heart we know something's wrong with it, and because it doesn't sit well, it shouldn't actually. We're troubled because we're not actually made to die. The reason it it confronts us the way it does and it feels so painful the way it is is because you and I were never meant to experience the reality of death. Did you know that? And so what death is, is actually a reminder that things aren't the way that they should be. And, And that we've likely made choices and decisions in our life that have rejected the one who actually gives us life. And when we do that, we break from him and we experience death. See, in death, we see our rebellion from God. And that's what we hate the most. And we see it in the people that we love, and then we lose those people. And we think, man, death stinks. And it does. So I want to I ask and answer, at least I hope to, a few questions for us. The first is this, kind of a two-parter. Why is it that we all die, and, and why are we all dying Like, why do we experience death almost on a daily basis? And and then the opposite of that is, how can we actually find and live a life that's actually alive? So why is it that we die? And then how do we actually live in such a way that's alive? So the first one is, why do we all die and why are we all dying? What happened to us? Well, if if you know kind of our the way that we approach things here so often at Cultivate, we go back to the first story in the Bible, which kind of sets the stage for all the other stories. And you're probably thinking, man, we go back to that story a lot, you know? But so much of who we are and the way that the world is and the way that the world should be is all found in a series of stories in the first three chapters of Genesis. And the more you actually understand the way the story began and then what got it so messed up in the first place, the more you look at the world and you go, man, it makes perfect sense. So what happened? Well, it says that we were created in God's image to be in community with him and that God placed the first humans in a garden to experience life abundantly. Life lived alongside him. Life walking with him in the cool of the day. And God goes to these two individuals, Adam and Eve, and he tells them, I'm going to set up in a garden all the things that you need. And you're free to eat of every tree in the garden. Just go for it. I mean, have till your heart's content. And and all of those things are going to keep you dependent upon me. But I'm going to give you life. Just trust me. He said, but there's one tree in the middle of the garden alongside the tree of life, which, by the way, you can eat of. But this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat this one because if you do, you're going to die. It's going to go very badly for you. So God gives us a choice, right? 
He says, choose life and trust the giver of life that I'll give you everything. Or eat of this other tree which will give you the knowledge of good and evil. And, but from that point on, you're going to have to trust in yourself. And when you find that you need to trust in yourself for your own life, it's going to be death to you. It's going to feel like death and it's going to result in death. And you're going to discover that there's actually no life apart from the giver of life. And so whenever we choose not to believe God, what we're fundamentally saying is, I would rather die. I would rather choose death than to live with you. And God says, okay. It's your choice. I wish that you didn't make it, but I'll let you experience the, 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 the pain and the sorrow that comes along with that decision. And so, I mean, think of the world that we live in. Why is it that we experience so much pain and death and sorrow and war and brokenness, conflict? It's because of us. It's because of our decision, right? It's because we've chosen and we've gotten the, the, the payment for our choosing. That's what happens when we live apart from the source of life. That's why Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. We chose to live a life rejecting God, and the wage for that, the full payment of it, is death. If you went into work this week, and you worked your butt off, and then on Friday, your boss handed you a paycheck that was half of what what you're due, what would your reaction be? (laughs) You'd go, wait a second, I, I, need the, I, I need the full payment for what I've done. This is unjust. So flip that around. And God gives us the just payment for what we've done. But then he says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, there's payment for what we choose. And so it's not like God's sitting around going, man, I can't wait to see people die. I'm so glad that there's death in the world. I'm so glad that there's conflict and sorrow. Let me make him squirm just a little bit longer. He's not doing that at all. He's saying, I I would give you the gift of life if you just take it. But because of your choices, you experience the result of that. See, I I know you know this, um, but let me sober you to the fact that we're all going to die. None of us in this room are going to overcome death. I, I'm, it doesn't matter how many Harleys you buy or how many plastic surgeries you get. We're, we're all going to experience this. And when we do, and none of us overcome it, once we die, we will all face judgment before a holy God and give an account for our lives. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And some of you here will stand before him not on the goodness or the basis of your own life, but on, in your faith in the one who chose life on your behalf, who did trust God when we don't trust him, and his name is Jesus. But some of you, having rejected Jesus, will give an account for your own life and how you've rejected him. So you're probably thinking, okay, why are we going here? Like, why are we doing this? I thought this was about Lazarus. I thought this was about like a fun story where Jesus comes and he raises somebody from the dead and everyone's happy. Well, you, you won't understand the story unless you understand what Lazarus' fundamental problem is, which, by the way, is the same problem that we have, which is that we've rejected God and because of that we experience death. Ultimate death one day, but 
kind of a, an ongoing slow death today, right? I mean, how many of your relationships are exactly what you hope they be all the time? How many of your interactions, everyone just treats you the way that you feel like you should be treated? It doesn't happen, does it? See, we experience death every single day. So how is it that we can actually live a life that's alive? Well, if you keep reading the story from Genesis, it goes on, and you see that God begins to rescue his people from a place called Egypt, and then he leads them to this place called the Promised Land. And that land is to be, in a sense, a new Eden, a new garden, whereby God is going to set up residence with his people, and he says, I'm going to walk with you again, and I'm going to set before you blessings, but if you choose away from me, I'm going to set up curses, and it's going to go really bad, and you're going to experience both of those things. And so it comes to the point where they're about to go into this land to experience this life with God, and God is giving them some final instructions on how to go about doing that. So right before they go in, in Deuteronomy 30, he tells them this. When all these blessings and curses have come, that I've set before you come upon you, in other words, there are going to be times and days where you're going to choose life. And there are going to be times and days where you're going to choose death. And you're going to get to experience the ramifications of both of those decisions. And when that happens, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. You hear hear what God's saying there? He's saying, when you choose death and you experience the fruit of your decision, just come back to me. Just walk home. And I'll welcome you. I'm going to receive you when you do that. And I'll be compassionate and graceful upon you. And I'll actually restore everything that was lost to you. I mean, that's a great offer, right? Right? I mean, that should lead us to, to think that God is graceful and to love him anew, right? But it's not even that. He, he goes on to say that when you return, even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. How many of you have ever met somebody you just considered a lost cause? Right? This is like... There's no way that God could do, ever do anything in that person's life. And sometimes we feel that about ourselves. I'm just too far gone. You hear what he's saying? Even those who've been banished to the most far-off reaches under heaven, what's going to happen to those people? Even from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. In other words, there's no such thing as a lost cause. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers and will and you will take possession of it, he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. You catch that? You're going to rebel. You're going to choose death. You're going to find yourself in places you never thought you would end up in life. I'm going to come and rescue you. I'm going to bring you back in. And when you return, I'm even going to give you more than you had before. That's crazy, right? Why would God do that? What is he up to? It's it's as if he's saying, I want the whole world to be more impressed with my grace and my mercy and my compassion and my abundance than your ability to reject me. 
Because my grace is so much bigger than your rebellion. Sounds good, right? It gets better. You keep reading. Verse 6, he says this, Then the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. That sounds like not a fun process, but (laughs) what he's saying is, I'm going to cut away the parts of your heart that actually reject me. I'm going to reform your heart so that you'll love me. So I'm going to circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and what? And live. So you reject me. I go and find you. You're not a lost cause even though you think you are. I know that you're not. I'm going to come find you. I'm going to bring you back. You'll return to me. And and instead of choosing life, you chose death. But I did all the work for you. And when you come back, it gets even better. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to work on the inside of who you are and show you how to live because you don't know how to do it. But I'll show you and I'll give you the way and I'll change you to do it. And then finally he says this, since all this is true, since I'll do all of this work, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. I'm giving you the choice. Blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children, what? May live. So let me ask you, I'd love to hear your responses. What do you think it means to choose life? According to the story. It's to choose God, yeah. And what does that mean? Like what does it mean to cho- like what does it look like to choose God? I, I saw Carol first, so I'm gonna... Yeah, we get multiple chances, don't we? With this God? Isn't that good news? Like, if you made a really bad decision this morning at 8 o'clock, it's, it's 10.30. You got a new one. That's every moment by moment I set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Right? What else does it mean to choose God, to choose life? Have peace. Yeah. Yeah. But choose the one who gives us peace, Right? And we shouldn't think that peace is found anywhere except for him, right? What else? Choose contentment with him, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like going back to the garden and going, I believe that you've given all the trees for me. And I'm going to trust by faith that they're all enough to sustain me and give me exactly what I need. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, it means to choose him, right? It means to choose obedience to him, to listen to his voice when he calls us. So this is kind of the critical question. If it's true that God welcomes us back, those who rejected him, he welcomes us home like we're family, And he'll give us a new heart when we do. He'll actually give us the desire to obey him when we come back to him. This is like the world's best deal, right? It doesn't get better than this. I mean, if you can think of a deal 
that offers you more than that. You do everything wrong, God will come and get you. He will cover over everything that you've done, welcome you home, and then give you a new heart when you can't do it yourself. I, I can't think of a better deal than that. Okay? If that's the case, why in the world don't we choose life? Like, it's the best deal in the world. Why don't we choose it? Over and over again, if we were just to, to take a slice of our lives, just even this week, and rack up the number of times that we choose life and dependence on Him, and, and subsequently how we choose death and independence and trust in ourselves, I mean, how, how is that going to balance out for us? I, I'm, in my own life, I'm saying it's at least 50-50. But I probably choose death far more often than I choose life. Why is that? (laughs) Here's the reason why I think that's the case. Because to choose life for those who are dying means that you need to die. I'm going to say that again because it's really, really important. To choose life for those who are dead and dying means that you as the one who are dead, need to die. So you need to die to yourself in order to choose life. You need to die to placing your trust in yourself. You need to die to thinking that you're the center of the universe and that your decisions are what matter and and your needs are are, are the superior needs above all other people. You need to die to believing that you can do enough to make God pleased with you. You need to, to... to die to all of those things. You need to die to the, to the thinking that you can make the world a better place and that you can be the savior of the world or the savior of your family or the savior of your children or the savior of your spouse. You need to die to all of that. We need to die to ourselves. We need to be willing to say, I have to be the one to die. I remember this was the fundamental issue that kept me from actually choosing Jesus when I was in college. I'd grown up part of a a church, and I had heard the gospel, and I believed that Jesus was a real person, that he existed, and that he died on a cross, and that he rose after three days. I I, I knew all of that in my mind. If somebody were to ask me, "Do do you think that that actually happened, that it actually occurred? I would say, absolutely, yes. And then I went to college, and for three years, I kind of experienced the ramifications of living a life unto myself and trying to figure it all out on my own and try to be my own person and do things my way and and push God away over and over and over again. And I, I remember hearing the offer of the gospel, just come to me and I'll give you life. I think my roommate actually said those exact words to me at one point. Like, do you know that Jesus offers you life and that that things aren't going well for you? I mean, just take a survey of the way things are going and and you'll find that that there's actually life in him. I go, yeah, 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 I know that. But I wasn't willing to die. And, And the funny thing is, God actually put me into a situation in my junior year of college where I had absolutely no choice but to die. Have you ever been in one of those situations? For me, it was a friend that was going through an experience. And my MO had been, since my life is so messed up, I'm just going to help everyone else with their life. Ever do that game? Like, nobody helped me out. I don't need any help at all. 
But in order to make my feel, myself feel better about my life, I'm going to survey the landscape of my life and find someone that's more messed up than I am, and I'm going to help them up to my level, which probably isn't very much higher, but it's higher than theirs, you know? And boy, am I going to feel like a good person when I do that. And so I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And the, the more I tried, the more broken I found out my friend was. And the more I tried, the more broken I found out that I was. And it took me about nine months of doing that till I got to the actual point where I said, I cannot do this anymore, Jesus. I have been trying to live my life on my own. And Jesus said, yeah, you have. How's that working? See, and every day since then, this is what I've found out, is that my story repeats itself. The way that I came to Christ is the way that I need to continue to walk in him. And so my daily struggle each and every day is, today, will I choose to trust in myself and my own wisdom, my own knowledge, and do things my way, or will I actually die to myself and trust someone else? Do you ever struggle with that question? See, I'll put it this way. And how, how many of the situations that you're experiencing right now, today, are you making decisions in order to avoid dying to yourself? See, we do that constantly, right? We want to avoid our own death, and so we, we choose death in order to avoid it. I mean, I mean, think of like dieting, which, by the way, has the word die in it. I mean, if you ever. Because it feels like death, right? You look at your refrigerator and you go, I can't have that. That's death. You know, like there's chocolate cake in there. Come on, people. You know? But what happens with dying? You die the little death of being able to make certain choices for yourself so that you can experience the greater life of having health. Right? But sometimes we don't want to die the little death. Many times we don't. This is marriage, by the way. Marriage is, is the death of two people to find life together. And so often what the problem of marriages are are two people that are occupying the same space but living under themselves. See, you need to die to yourself in order to, be, to, to have an actual good marriage with somebody else. And they need to die too, right? It's, it's a dual dying together. Some of us, we live in isolation from others because we, we don't want the death of having somebody else in our life to care about us and maybe abandon us. And maybe we've had issues with that in the past. And we, so we say, rather than dying that death, I'm going to die the death of having people in my life to speak love and truth into me and to do the same for them and to live as a family. And so every day we experience the little death of not being in, in true relationship with anyone. Some of us are holding back right now on speaking the truth in love to somebody, and we know that God is calling us to do that, but we don't want to die the death of loving ourselves more than we love the other person, and so we refrain from speaking it because we're afraid of their reaction against us. And rather than love them well with the truth, we withhold the truth and we really love ourselves and, and refuse to die. For me, oftentimes what that looks like is avoiding conflict altogether because I don't like conflict. And so I, I, I want people to be encouraged by me and to be built up when they're around me and all those things. I want them to like me. And so getting into conflict with somebody means that I have to actually trust that God is going to use the conflict for his good and their good 
and die to myself in order to, to move into that conflict that God might actually use it to bring something good about. What is it for you? What, what is the, the little death that you're refusing to die, but because of that you're experiencing little deaths all the time? To whatever that is, if you're afraid to die, then you'll never find life. That's the first step. And that's the step that we hate the most. But here's the truth. Only dead things need resurrecting, right? Jesus needed to die in order to be the resurrection. In the same way in your life, you can only experience the power of the resurrection when you die. So if you don't die to your own attempts at making your life better, then you'll never find the resurrection power of Jesus to turn something dead into life. It'll never happen for you. And you'll continue to walk in death. And some of us, we've been living so long just fooling ourselves into thinking that what life is all about and what Christianity is all about and the church is all about is is just trying to work really hard at life to get a little bit better. Or that Jesus came in order to make good people better and bad people good. That's not the case at all. Jesus came to make dead people alive. But in order to know that, you've got to know that you're dead, right? And you need to be able to die to yourself. Because Jesus says, to attempt to, to live on our own, it's, 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 we're doomed to fail. In Mark 34, he says this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. I'm hoping that today you're, you're going to be willing to say to yourself, I'm willing to die to myself. I don't want to live for me anymore. I don't want to trust in my own strength. I, I, don't, I want someone greater to come and to save me and help me and do something that I'm incapable of doing on my own. I want someone to come and save me from myself in my own attempts to be a better person. And here's the truth. God knows that you dying is the best possible thing that could happen to you. What makes me say that? You remember in the story in verse 5 and 6, it says that this is like the most like, confusing verse if you don't understand what's going on here. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Then what does it say? Yet. Some of your translations might say so. I read the message version and it says, but oddly enough, (laughs) Jesus loved them, but oddly enough, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he did what? He stayed where he was for two more days. That's... That's confusing at best and disturbing at worst, right? He loved them to such a degree that he allowed them to continue in the situation that they were in. What? I mean, really? John's saying it it was Jesus' delay in responding that was an expression for his love for them. See, if you don't know the whole story, then you'll think that Jesus' delay is a statement of apathy towards Lazarus. Right? 
And we play this game all the time in our own life. God, if you loved me, you'd get me out of this. If you loved me, you'd rescue me. If you loved me, you'd change my situation. If you loved me, you'd do something. And Jesus is going, I love you so much that I'm willing to wait a little bit longer. Because what's necessary is that you die so that you'll experience life. And the longer that you cling to your life, the more death you'll experience. But if you would just die to yourself, then you'd see how much life I can give you. See, you think you're fine without me. But the truth is, you're really dead and you need resurrecting. And so sure, I could come in and, I mean, could Jesus have changed the situation from where he was? Did he actually have to go to Bethany to heal Lazarus? No, he's done it from a distance in the past. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he just change our situation from a distance in our lives sometimes? Why do you think? Yeah. Yeah, he wanted them to want, yeah, experience the greater ex- resurrection. He also didn't want them to experience it apart from him. So oftentimes we want God to change our situation so that we can go on living without him. Right? And God's going, I have so much more planned for you than that, and so I'm going to allow you to experience the stench of death for a little while so that you'll see how badly you'll need life. So we need to die. Secondly, we need to find our life when we come to the one who died in our place who actually experienced the death that we should have experienced. The truth is, you'll never be able to die to yourself if you don't have a good picture of God and His love for you. You'll always find yourself wondering about that that verse where Jesus says, Jesus loved them so. You won't hear the first part. You'll just hear the He stayed where He was and didn't do a darn thing about it. So you need to know and experience the actual love of God in order to be willing to, to sit in the death and wait for him to give you life. Jesus goes on and he says this. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. See, he's going, the reason that I'm waiting is so that my glory will be revealed and you'll actually believe in me. And if you believe in me, you who, who are experiencing death will actually live. And in another way, you'll, you'll never experience death again. This is the purpose that I'm waiting. This is why I actually let him die. So we know that, right? Jesus let him die. He had a a greater purpose. But what does he do when he actually arrives on the scene? He weeps. That's weird, right? (laughs) I mean, if Jesus has such a great plan together, and he he knows exactly what's going to happen, and he, he, I mean, I'm assuming he realizes that he can raise Lazarus from the dead and that he's going to do so. He doesn't come into the situation and go, everybody stop, you're crying. (laughs) You know? 
like, hush up a little bit. I'm about to do something cool. Don't miss it. (laughs) He doesn't do that at all, right? He comes in and he weeps along with the mourners. He weeps. Another way to say that would be to say he actually carries the sorrows of death upon himself even though he has never experienced and will never experience again death himself. He carries the sorrows of those who are mourning death upon himself even though he himself is life and can give life. Do you realize that Jesus does the same thing for you? That he who is life, Jesus said, I am the life. You know what that means, like according to Deuteronomy? It means that he is the one that chose life all the time. So even if your life, you're like 50-50, Jesus is 100%. I choose life every single moment of every single day. I always and constantly do everything that my Father has asked of me. I am connected with him and I obey him in all things. He is life walking among us. And yet he who is life, what does he do? On the cross, he drinks our death for us. For those who are dead, he says, I will take that death upon myself. And the one who chooses life always chose our death in rebellion to give life even to those who choose death. Do you know he loves you that much that he was willing to do that? Do you know how much he hates death? I mean, it has no part of him, and yet he... The Bible says that he submitted himself unto death so that those who were dead and dying could experience life. That's how you know he's committed to you even though you may be going through things where you wonder if he's not. It's the only reason that you know. is because Jesus has said to you at some point, I will face death for those who are unwilling to face it themselves. You run from it, I'm running into it. So let me ask you, what does that do to your heart when you hear that? What's that do? How does that make you feel about him? I'd love to know. Isn't it amazing that, that, I mean, so we all, our natural inclination is to run from death because we fear what it brings. And we should, by the way apart from Jesus. And yet Jesus, as the one whose life, he runs into death for us so that everyone who follows after him, even though from the outside it looks like they're running towards death, they're actually running towards life. Do you ever meet somebody that just knows and loves and has experienced the love of Jesus in their heart to such a degree that, and, and they're in the midst of, of walking towards death? What are they like? They're like joyful, you know? You ever been around, I hope that you've been around somebody like that that is just so caught up in the fact that Jesus has gone to death for them that they know that when they're running towards death, they're actually running towards him, which is life. That's why Paul's able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is, is, is gain because he realizes that we, he's going to gain Christ through death. Do you know that? 
And here's the other thing that it does for us. When we hear that Jesus has done that for us in that day, what does it do to us today? It says, well, if you've done that for me, I can trust you with a whole lot more, (laughs) you know? I can trust you with everything. I can trust you with all of the decisions because I know that you'll be life for me. And when I give up the right to decide for myself, when I die to myself and trust in you, I I know that I'm trusting in one who is powerful enough to save me from the situation that I'm in. See, that's what happens, right? God opens your eyes to show you how great he is in in comparison to, to, to you and to what you've trusted in and to the decisions that you've made. And so you start to, to realize that he's bigger and he's more loving and he's more faithful. And then that revelation causes you to trust him. And you actually change course in your life where you were unable to change course before. You know what the word is for that? It's repentance. It's God opening our eyes to how big he is. And, and then we go, if that's what he's like, if that's who he is, then that changes everything. Why would I not walk with him and live with him? See, it's a redependence, isn't it? Not independence. That's part of the reason why we're doing this whole series, by the way, is so that we would all walk away every week going, man, if that's what he's like, think of the way that he could live his life through me. Think of, of how different things could be. It does change everything. And then it gets better. This is kind of the the last part, what we'll end on, is that he doesn't just die die our death. When he becomes the resurrection and the life for us, he actually is our life, lived out through us. He, He is the resurrection and the life. It's so easy for us to be satisfied with just having Jesus raised from the dead and then trust that one day, like, if I'm in him, then I'm going to run towards life and not towards death. And so we trust him for like the big stuff that day. But then we say everything from today until that day, well, all that's kind of up to me. I want you to hear something different, though. In Romans 8.10, he says this, But if Christ is in you, then your body is dead because of sin, and yet your spirit is live because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection, is actually living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. You know how radical that is? That Christ is the fullness of God, and if you're in Christ, you actually have Christ living in you. And so the fullness of God and all of his power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in your life. So every time you choose to die to yourself, and every time you say, I trust you and not me, God, come and work through my situation and actually bring life where I'm only going to bring death. He brings life, baby, right? I mean, it is real life. It is the power of God to change our situations, to change our hearts. Think of the power that God has put in you through Christ. And this, by the way, is to be a picture of the church. You want to know what does it mean to be in the church? What's it mean to be his family? 
It's to be a, a, a group of rebellious, sinful people who have, by the grace of God, come back into his family and said, we want to trust you and not in ourselves. And we're learning every day how to die to ourselves and live for you. And when we do that, you come and you live through us and you demonstrate a kind of life that is not possible apart from your influence and work in us. That's the church. And and so when people see that on display, they're going to go, what is up with you? Why do you live differently? And then the answer we're to give to that is, of course, it's not me. It's actually him in me. You're not seeing me. When you see bad stuff come out of my life, that's the old me. That's the dead me, and sometimes I choose death, and when I do, I need to realize that I can run back into the arms of my gracious Father, and he'll return to me. But when you see life out of me, please know that it is not me, and please also know that you can find the same thing in you. Do you believe that you're too far gone for God to use you and to fill you and to make you new? If you do believe that, then you don't know the story. Please know that. Please believe that. And please walk from here knowing that you, if you've come to him, have the power of God in your life. I want that so badly for you. I really do. And I pray for you often that God would allow you to experience that. Because it's the best possible life there is. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though we run from you and rebel against you and we continually choose death, you knew that we would choose that before we even made the choice. So often we think that we're excluded from all of this because of some of the choices that we've made or the choices that have been made against us. Please help us to believe with our hearts that you're bigger than those choices. And Father, I I pray that if there's a situation that we're experiencing today where we don't want to die to ourselves, that you would show us a picture of who you are. Help us to see such a grand view of Jesus and his power that we would go, why would I trust myself anymore? I trust you. Come and fill me. So God, I ask for that grace. And I ask also that we would be the people of God who are sent into this world to be reckless demonstrations of your grace. That people would go, they don't make any sense. There, there is nothing in them that, that, that speaks of life, and yet when I'm around them, I feel alive. I hope some people maybe would be feeling that for the first time. They're going, this feels like life. And that when, when they start to ask the questions, we would go, it's not us. It's Jesus. Trust in him. Thank you that you're life and that you're our resurrection. Please send us and fill us with your power. In Jesus' name, amen.